What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Whoa, getting chilly down here in central Otago. There's snow on the hills. And I'm sitting in my makeshift studio with my woolly hat on, rugged up, wishing I had a hottie. My goodness, it's getting cold. And um, and I quite like the cold, I've got to say, because uh, it makes you feel good and you can always wrap up heat. I don't know what you do when it gets hot and you just get hot. And you can't sort of seem to escape it. Got a great show uh, this morning for everyone. Oliver Hartwich, he's with the New Zealand Initiative, uh, a thinker, a think tank, and writes policy, writes what government should be doing, uh, always from a economic point of view, always rational and reasoned, uh, always favouring people's power over government power, which is to say uh, the free market. But he's written the most interesting piece, which we're going to be discussing today, which is from titled From God's Own to the Devil's Playground, and just how everything, wherever you look, overwhelmingly so, Everything that government does has deteriorated so dramatically, just fallen off a cliff. And it was like we were sliding and then COVID hit and then we went over the precipice. And it's sort of hard to keep up, hard to process, hard to deal with. So we've got Oliver on and you'll enjoy him. And then we have the wonderful Alison Paulet, who is... Here's a new word for me, a mycologist. She studies fungi. And not just studies fungi, but makes a profession out of writing about fungi, beautiful books, and giving seminars, and traveling the world, uh, giving lectures at universities. And what a what a fabulous world. How wonderful is nature that... These, well, they're not plants, as we learn, but these fungi work symbiotically with other plants and through the soil, uh, providing nutrients to trees and other plants, breaking down organic matter, making our soil rich and nutritious. And you have to 
ask yourself, and indeed we ask Alison, what it all means when we have industrial farm production and sort of treat the soil as inert rather than as this living ecosystem. Fascinating interview. Stay tuned, stay sharp. Flick us a text, 2057. Love to hear from you. And send me an email, inbox at radiocheck.radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Flick us a text, 2057, send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, we've got a wonderful guest coming up. She, Alison Poulet, I hope I did that right. I always struggle with surnames. Why don't people just be called Smith and Brown and I could manage, or Jones, but Poulet, Alison Poulet, a wonderful surname. She does the most beautiful books that you can imagine. Beautiful photography, just wonderful. And beautiful words to go with the book about a beautiful subject. Alison, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. And I love that you think fungi so beautiful. Oh, what did I do? Oh, I think they're beautiful. Yes, but I know so little about them. But I've got a couple of questions to begin with, just before we get into the nuts and bolts. Fungus, singular? Yeah. Fungi or fungi? Well... I guess if, if you want to speak biological Latin, 
it's fungi, and Americas, Americans send, tend to say fungi, but fungi, 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 we all know we're talking about the same thing. That's what matters most of all. Mm. No, I think they're beautiful because you'll appreciate I'm living in Otago and you go for a walk uh, t- down here. We have beach forests, and I don't know the names, but you see the most beautiful fungi, just unimaginable but what i love with your books is you capture that close up with a wonderful lens and they just i mean they look a miracle they are they're they're absolute miracles they're forests full of miracles and i absolutely agree with you and you're so fortunate to have those wonderful nothophagus forests which is so Mm. rich with such a great diversity of fungi well we're going to cover quite a lot of this but first of all how did you get a job writing and studying fungi? Look, it really started with the curiosity and fascination of childhood. I mean, crawling around in the Australian bush, just noticing all these amazing things on the forest floor. So whether it was sundews or whether it was beetles or orchids all of it was fascinating to me, but the fungi held a particular kind of allure. Oh, so the love, the love of fungi, fungi, fungus goes right back to being a child. Absolutely. And and they were part of this whole thing that today we call ecology. Yes. But that they, they I mean, so it was all of interest, whether it was birds or trees or mosses or bright, whatever. But the fungi held a particular kind of allure. And I think it was because they were. They seemed so inexplicable. You know, it was obvious they mm. weren't a- animals for a long time. They were thought of as plants, but they weren't really very much like plants other than the fact that they were sitting still. But they just, this ephemerality, they were there and they were gone. They're so short-lived, bizarre forms that went beyond just, the, you know, the classic cap and stalk style umbrella-shaped mushroom. There's all these other sort of seemingly inexplicable forms. So How interesting that it was way back then because I think Albert Einstein got given a compass. And it fascinated him how it always pointed north and he couldn't understand it. And that childhood fascination stayed with him all those years. And here you are, because we do we do have that wonderful curiosity as children, but somehow you and Albert Einstein kept yours, <laughs> but the rest of us lose it. I think it's a very generous comparison, but <laughs> Wow, yeah, you're the... You're the, um, you know, Albert Einstein was physics, and here you are in the ecological botanical world. So here you were as a child, fascinated by this. You're going to school, and you kept up your interests through school and presumably on to university. Indeed, and my equivalent of Einstein's compass was a loop or a magnifier, and that, you know, you can still buy them today for 10 or 15 bucks. You know, they're, they're, they're re- relatively cheap and they just open up new worlds. So to be able to see something 10 times magnified, and it wasn't just mushrooms, it might have been a beetle or something else, but that just opened up microcosms of absolute delight mm. and wonder. And as you say, the aesthetics and beauty and bizarreness led me to their science because I wanted to know, you know, I could see they were beautiful and bizarre, but I wanted to know what are they doing? Surely they're not just some crazy decorations on the forest floor. They must be actually doing something more important than that. So that's what... But it was 
it was fungi, not say, because beetles look beautiful under a magnifying glass and they wiggle, but it was the fungi <laughs> that fascinated you. Well, all I mean, my first job as a scientist was actually looking at the mouthparts of beetle larvae to identify them. So mm-hmm. I actually did, you know, start out with what we call invertebrates or those spineless things, but it's all connected, Rodney. Like it's not that it's not that fungi are some favorite group of organisms like a fancier might like mm. orchids or cacti or poodles or whatever. It's more that I wanted to know what they were doing. And that's different to what fungi are doing. That's different to sort of collecting them because like swap cards or something. And I sort of soon came to realize that they were pretty much holding forests together. They were underpinning the mm. function of pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. But the thing is, you couldn't study this at university. We could only do a very generalized, you know, ecology and fungi didn't come into it. Maybe it's a little different in New Zealand, but here in Australia, you still can't study mycology, that is the science of fungi, at an undergraduate level. We might get the odd lecture in a more generalised biological sciences or environmental sciences degree, but mycology hasn't actually made it onto the agenda of our you know, curricula at our universities. I mean, I imagine it could be the same in New Zealand. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yes, I'm sure that's true, that, you know, at undergraduate level, you might get a couple of lectures on it. But Absolutely. It, you, 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 funny enough, Funnily enough, I have a degree in botany and zoology. Same. <laughs> there you go. So, um, and I, I had that same fascination with how it all connected together and to a sort of super organism. Indeed, yeah. And so- we know so much more than we did even 30, 40 years ago about the interconnection yeah, look, we've we've known about them for a long, long time, but the extent or the significance mm. or the detail of those is only just starting to be recognised. So you did your university work and you studied the mouthparts of beetle <laughs> larva to hook them to to able, I guess, to identify the larva with the adult beetle. Yeah, and, and but you're now this sort of wonderful world traveler popularizing and writing these beautiful coffee table books that you could leave on your coffee table and you're sort of freelancing I guess are you I am look I freelance for yeah look look nearly nearly three decades so a long time but Mm. I think to convey the complexities of the science and the abstract nature of something that has been largely overlooked within the biological sciences. Or well, let's get into that. You're on uh, Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're doing some real talk about fungi. What is a f- – I've got to make my mind up what I'm to say, fungi, 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 fungi. What, what, is, what is a fungus? <laughs> Wonderful question. And it, you know what, Rodney? It's a really hard one to answer because we answered what this question often by saying what they're not rather than what they are because people have these two reference points to understand nature, and that is animals and plants. The fungi have rarely come into our equation of what we understand as being biodiversity or nature or the environment. So they're not plants, they're not animals. They're fungi, and they share characteristics with both animals and plants, but they're very, very different organisms. If I was to define it 
technically we'd say it's a eukaryotic heterotroph, but that won't mean much to most people who aren't biologists or haven't studied science in some way. So how they're similar to plants is that they occupy similar habitats. They have connections with plants. They're typically stationary, but how they're actually built, what they're made of, something called chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N, and also the way they get their nutrition, that is through digestion, makes them actually more like animals than plants. So there's this horrible clunky definition, eukaryotic heterotrophs, but if you think of it this way, they're, they're different to both plants and animals, but they're more closely related to animals in terms of what they're made of and how they actually get their food. They don't photosynthesize like plants. They don't have chlorophyll. They don't use the sun. They secrete enzymes just like we do inside our bodies, but they do it outside their bodies. They secrete enzymes directly into the environment, into the organic matter in which they're sitting, and they absorb what they need for that, what we call external digestion. And so it's so a they great must they they must be very, very old. I mean, they must have they must go back to the very start of life. Look, we know they at least go back to the Devonian, so 500 million years ago when life on land started to appear and diversify. So they are certainly very successful organisms and they've, you know, in that sense that they've been around a very long time, fairly unchanged in many ways. And we think among those fungi that could have been the earliest were the lichens, with every lichen, of course, being a fungus, not a plant. It's, a, it's actually a symbiosis of a fungus and an alga together. But we think these were some of the first terrestrial fungi that broke down those primeval rocks, created the first soils that then allowed for the succession of plants and, and life to evolve on My land. You're right, very, very old, very diverse, very successful. And there must be a remarkable number of species which I would imagine we're only dimly perceiving. You're right. And look, we probably, we don't really know, but we are many decades, maybe even a century behind the knowledge of plants. Like we're just starting to get a sense of the diversity of fungi, how many are out there. But in Australia, and I'm guessing in New Zealand too, most fungi are probably still yet to be named. You know, we don't often come across a tree these days that doesn't have a name. We've sort of got a pretty good idea of what woody species are out there, but all the time, particularly now with the rise of molecular mycology where they're looking at genes, the we're discovering new species daily, just astonishing. And what's the life cycle of a, of a fungus? Okay, so the basic reproductive unit of a fungus is something called a spore. So it's a bit like the equivalent of a seed in plants, although it's a bit different again in that it's microscopic, it doesn't have a food supply like a seed does, so it's likely to be relatively short-lived. So this tiny spore, if it finds exactly the right combination of conditions in terms of the moisture, the nutrient supply, the temperature, the pH, all these things to germinate, it sends out a long translucent cell called a hypha. And this hypha's got two very special talents. It can divide and it can fuse. So it divides, so two become four onwards like that. It moves through the soil looking for food. It's food, of course, being the organic matter in soil, like the sticks and leaves and bark that fall directly from trees and other plants. And then this the hyphae collectively form what's known as the fungus mycelium. So there's all these new terms that are unfamiliar to many people, but they're starting to become part of our lingo. And this mycelium, that's the actual fungus organism, the living, growing 
feeding part of the fungus. And when we see that mushroom pop up, that's just the organ of the organism, so to speak. It's just the reproductive structure or the sporophore or the sporing body that contains the spores. And when that reproductive structure appears as a puffball or a mushroom or a coral above the surface of the earth, when it's mature, it then releases its spores to the wind and that cycle begins again. Did they have sex? So fungi sort of really confound our, our notion of, of sex, of all of these things by which we understand life. So fungi are, are sexual and asexual. We don't refer to fungus sexes like we do, you know, male and female for plants and animals. We refer to fungus mating types, and certainly many of them have two mating types, but some of them have multiple mating types. We know some have even tens of thousands of mating types. So it's really interesting, Rodney, because all these sort of premises on which we understand life, animals and plants, are based on this notion of two sexes, on a, a fixed lifespan of bounded organisms. But fungi suddenly wobble or topple all of those, I guess, those dichotomies and those ways we understand nature. And I think if we had used the fungus mycelium as the prototype for what nature is, rather than a plant or an animal, we'd have a much broader way of thinking about life, not just nature, but about life in general, including human societies. And they don't, you're suggesting in that, that while you start with a spore and it grows, it doesn't necessarily die the original plant. The original fungus. So yes. plants, yeah. yeah. So, so they Sorry. don't... Yeah, I, I I shouldn't have said plant. But yes, that, that original fungus, does it sort of live under the ground potentially exactly. forever? It, it, it's, that's absolutely spot on. So long as it's got a food source. Wow. I know. And this is where, you know, we talk about a tree that might have a lifespan of 300 years. You know, we homo sapiens might have an average lifespan of, what, 83 years in the, in the first world. But the concept that something can potentially live infinitely so long as it's got food that that sort of as i said that that undermines our, our concept our whole concept of how we understand life and that's why to me fungi are so compelling because they challenge a whole lot of structures and frameworks that we've been given to understand what nature is but fungi confound oh, all the time so they, they and, can and, and the, i know lichen that you see on a rock which is a fungus and an algae joined together or working together, they can be very old, can't they? Indeed, absolutely. And, you know, that some of them in the, you know, we call them extremophiles or lovers of the extremes. And those that live in, you know, Arctic environments or very extreme environments, we might see something that's the size of a, a dinner plate on a rock or a log, but it could in fact be, you know, decades old. So very slow growing. They're basically taking the tiniest bit of nutrition from the mists that waft wafting over of them. Oh, oh, sorry, wafting over them. So they they yeah, very slow growing, very adapted to extremes, very old, very ancient, but also remarkably resilient and resourceful mm. because when you combine two talents, you've got the talents of a fungus and an alga together, you've got a double set of, of survival mechanisms, really. Because the algae can photosynthesize. Exactly. And the fungus can take, what, moisture and nutrition? Exactly. The substrate. That's spot and, on, or even from the air, yeah. And, and wow. And presumably fungi have very specific 
niches or conditions that they need, that they're very specific to maybe a host or to the area. Is that the case or are they pretty easygoing? Well, like animals and plants, it's the case for some, but not for others. So you've got some that are very, very host-specific, like you say. things You might have heard of the cordyceps. These fungi parasitize or invade the body of an invertebrate, and that, that's a very particular invertebrate. It's this, it's this genus of beetle or that genus of stick insect. Or So some are very host-specific, while others are what we call generalists. So there's some fungi that can survive on, they grow in wood, and they can grow in wood of of conifers, of broadleaf trees, of a great range of, of different types of plant species. So just like animals and plants, where some are very, very particular about their habitat choices and their tolerances to different conditions, some fungi like that. We know there's a species over here growing on Kangaroo Island in Australia called the hidden pink gill. And the only place it lives is on large sheets of well-rotted sugar, sugar gum bark. So it doesn't want a stick or a log or a branch of another. It's the only place it grows. I mean, perhaps as we survey them more, we might find it in other habitats, but that one is very species-specific. Mm. Where there's other fungi, you might have heard of the honey fungus. And this particular one, it's why it's so successful and times can become quite invasive, is that it's not picky about what it invades. So it will grow in all kinds of wood of different sizes, ages. So just like animals and plants, you'll get that whole spectrum of very sensitive ones and very particular particular ones and then you'll get your generalists as well and are they found everywhere pretty much rodney you if you if you look carefully well maybe you shouldn't they they appear in the armpits and between the toes of homo sapiens yeah i know about the ones between your toes don't tell me don't get me started I mean, they also appear in marine ecosystems. They grow in freshwater ecosystems. They grow in the extremes of, of the Antarctic. But most fungi grow in soil or in wood and particularly in wet forests. So your wonderful nothophagus and other types of forests that you have in New Zealand. But we also find fungi in desert systems, in sand dunes, in grassland systems. So they're ubiquitous, they're widespread, they're diverse, and they can occupy pretty much... Yeah, pretty much most habitat types. The only ones they don't like are ones that are really highly disturbed. So think of like industrial agricultural systems where we constantly mm. till and disturb the soil and break up that fungus mycelium. They're the sort of systems where we don't tend to find fungi. And we witness, I assume, the reproductive part of the fungus. That's right. And that's exactly what the mushroom is or the bracket fungus or the puffball, that structure or sporophore or sporing body. That's just the container for the spores. So that's what I'm saying, that mycelium. I'm sure you've seen that, Rodney, when you've yeah. scratched around in the compost or the leaf litter, that, that cobwebby tapestry or matrix. That's the actual fungus organism. But for most of us, most of the time, that's it's out of our thinking because it's hidden beneath the soil. We don't tend to, you know, often turn over soil or leaf litter. We only become aware of them when we see that mushroom appear above the surface. So going through the litter and going through the, um, presumably the soil, is the, I guess, multiple fungi. Absolutely. And, and then when they reproduce, they pop up like a, a a thing that you see, 
But um, multiple fungi are intertwined through the litter, say, thinking of a beech forest. They're intertwined through that litter. Absolutely. And many of them are actually directly connected to the root system of the nothophagus, of the native beech. So they mm. form like a sheath, what we call an ectomycorrhizal symbiosis. So ecto means external. It's an external sheath on the root of the nothophagus. Myco means fungus. Rhizal means root. Symbiosis means alliance. So many of those fungi are actually directly locked onto the root system, expanding out that root system of the nothophagus, helping it access water, breaking down organic matter, releasing the nutrients and sending those back to the tree. And in return, the tree gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So there's likely to be dozens, if not hundreds, possibly even thousands of species all interconnected in that system. Truly amazing. And they are actually connected at the cellular level? Absolutely. So that what, what you're finding is that the... So a hypha is one long individual cell, but the hypha or hyphae plural collectively form that fungus mycelium. And it forms, as I say, the sheath around the root system of the plant and expands that out. And some of these actually penetrate the cortical cells of the plant root and enter into the cell itself and form a little structure that we refer to as an arbuscle. It's got the same root word as arbor, as in tree, because it has the form or shape of a tree. And that's the site of nutrient exchange between the plant and the fungus. So it is actually happening not just cellular level, but it's intracellular. It's actually happening with inside the cells of some plants, this relationship. So that relationship goes back before there were beech trees sort of thing, right? This is a very ancient relationship that uh, fungi have had with plants. Yeah, look, it probably started with the conifers. So, you know, and then we had, we had the conifer trees. Oh, of course, because you get those toadstools and that under conifers, don't you? Absolutely. And then we had the rise of the flowering plants or the broadleaf trees alongside the insects and other vectors that helped them distribute. But so we, we think, you know, it goes back. We know, we know some of the earliest symbioses probably were the lichens, but certainly these mycorrhizal or root fungus relationships. I mean, these early plants, their, their root systems weren't specialised enough or vast enough to actually extract enough nutrients from those primeval soils. So without the fungi that are much, much finer, that can penetrate all those interstitial spaces, those tiny gaps between the particles of dirt and sand, without those, those conifers couldn't ever have grown into anything beyond a little bonsai plant because they couldn't get enough nutrition, enough water. They actually need this surrogate root system in effect of the fungus to access those things for them. Mm, now, now for the reason <laughs> I have you on my show. And what's that? Well, it's a question. I'm waiting. So I have become a gardener. Mm -hmm. And I have Wally Richards come on and we talk gardening. And I started out not gardening veggies but uh building a nursery and so i live in otago and i built up i'd always wanted to build a fence like a proper fence and i built a proper fence to keep out the rabbits and my plan was to be in a position to plant out mountain beech trees wow and i worked out that you can buy them quite economically when they're small 
But as they get bigger, they become exponentially more expensive. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, well, I will buy a whole lot of small ones, you know, like um, a foot high, and uh, I will look after them and love them and care for them. And they'll grow and I'll put them in each year into a bigger pot. And then when I'm ready to plant them out and I've got all my sections sorted, I'll plant my beech trees out. So I have been researching how you look after these beautiful beech trees. And I know that they don't like their roots being disturbed. That's the thing that'll kill them. They're pretty hardy, but they don't like their roots being disturbed. But I read somewhere and I've tried to refine it and I can't. You know how you do I do I'm a I'm impatient and I'm a scattergun sort of researcher at night. The kids are in bed and I decide to look something up. And I furiously Googled it and I read it and then I can't find it because I read a very interesting thing that said that beech trees had a symbiotic relationship with a fungus. And I thought, huh. Maybe this is something I need to do. So I had it in my mind to hop in my truck and drive to a little beach forest somewhere and scruffle up a little bit of the detritus and lay it around each of my beach trees, wondering if that would, what's the word, inoculate my beach trees. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And, and technically, the answer is yes, you could inoculate them that way. But the thing to think about with a fungus spore that's very different to a, a plant seed is that it's short-lived. It doesn't have a food supply. Most of them probably they don't get that exact right combination of conditions in terms of the soil moisture, temperature, nutrient supply. If it doesn't find that very, very quickly, it's likely to disintegrate. So the closer in proximity that you bring in that organic matter where those the propagules of those fungi are adapted to those conditions, you know, similar salinity or temperature and moisture, the more chance you could have success in actually inoculating your beech trees. But the thing to keep in mind, your beech trees might already have their partners. They may already have either been inoculated or they were grown with soil that contained those propagules of mycelium and it's actually already got those symbiotic partners present. But if you do bring in all that, that, that organic matter, make sure you bring it very, very, so bring it in from very close by so you've got similar conditions and you also want to be sure you're not bringing in things you don't want, pathogenic things that could actually cause a problem in your garden. Mm. So, yeah, it's just about yeah trying to bring it in as, as from close as by as possible so that those... Because the other thought that I had is that I, I didn't know what was best because I had another thought which would be to take two or three of my little beech trees in their little container and sit them in a beech forest secretly for a week or two and see if <laughs> they would get inoculated and Look then the, bring yeah. them back to my nursery and then the, the spores would be spread by the air. I don't know. I And, of course, you might be quite right. I have to say, I asked the nurseryman about it and he looked at me like, huh, what? You know, fungi, what are you talking about? Because it's not a thing that people think about these days, right? You're absolutely right. And this technique you're describing, I've heard elsewhere of people doing this, taking the 
the tree into the forest, plant it in the forest where you've already got that whole spore bank or mycelial network there, and then at some point removing that tree again and bring it back to the garden. So this is a technique I've also heard about. Whether it's been successful, I'm still waiting to hear whether that, that <laughs> is actually working. But I, I might I, I might have to get a loop and start, you know, studying this at some length or a microscope or something. But because uh, to me, when I see beech trees planted in someone's section, they look horrifically sad. Really? Okay. Mm. Well, to me, uh, a forest, a beech forest, is this wonderful, primeval, mossy, rotten logs and lichens and fungi and bird life and insects. And there's a beech tree and a lawn. And I think, well, you've sort of got the tree, but you've not got what it lives in. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, you're you're really spot on, Rodney. I mean, and I think part of this is how we garden based on an aesthetic of tidiness rather than understanding of ecology. And I know it's a really strong tension. We want gardens to look a particular way. As gardeners, we are designers, you know, we redesign Mm. how nature does things. And so what often happens as a result of that is that we remove the organic matter, the leaves and sticks that the trees naturally drop Mm. because we see that as untidy. But that's the habitat. That's the food source of the fungi Mm. that are of such paramount importance to the trees there. So if we don't leave that food supply on the ground for the fungi that support the tree, it's no surprise the tree is going to look sick. It doesn't have its partners to actually access the nutrients in the water, to drought-proof them, to offer resistance against nematodes and other things that can damage the, the tree's mm. root system. So I think you're well, observing. Well, I'm, I'm determined. I've only got a little spot, and obviously there'll be a size uh, factor, but um, I'm sort of determined to sort of create that because that's to me is what's beautiful. Because what we've done, and I assume it's the same in Australia, but here in New Zealand, and I've been dealing with landscape architects who are wonderful. But and of course the council, they want you to plant natives. But we have this carryover of an English garden, yeah. which is so tidy. Yeah. And so linear. And I think they're beautiful. I think English gardens are stunning. But here they want you to plant natives, you know, because natives are good. And you think, well, that's very well. But we plant the natives as though it was an English garden. <laughs> and these are interesting conflicts. There's always multiple layers of when yeah. we're gardening, isn't there? There's the things that council tells us. There's our own aesthetic. There's trying to understand the ecology. There's trying to support the, you know, the fungi that support the plants. So it's a really challenging thing for a gardener. Well, while I've got my consent, going in i love the council but i'll give a report on them once i if i ever get approval but it's just fascinating to me because you know you i was walking um around a new beautiful beautiful uh subdivision Mm -hmm. uh locally you know multi-million dollar houses and these beautiful plants and you know beech trees everywhere and i they struck me as sad because I felt they were yearning. 
<laughs> I felt they had a yearning for the forest, if you know what I mean. It was yeah. sort of like a, it looked to me like a, a tiger in a cage pacing up and down. And 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 when you see that vibrant primeval where you feel as though you've stepped back into Jurassic Park or something in a beach forest. And um, we're, here it is sitting in this English lawn. But <laughs> that might be me having an over-fervent uh, imagination. Now, you have got beautiful books, and I want you to tell me about your books. You've got a latest book just out, but I also want you to tell me about all your books and your reason for writing them uh, in each case. Because they're a huge undertaking. Your books are exquisite. Oh, thank you, Ronnie. That's very kind of you to say so. Thank you. No, but they're a work of art, aren't they? They're, they're books that you read. And if it's a good book, you'll think, oh, well, that's a keeper because I like having that around. And then there are books that you read and they go, read that book and you can't remember where you put it or who you lent to it. And then there are beautiful books that you like just looking at. Oh, I'm glad you feel like that. But, yeah, look, certainly the, the very first one that I wrote on fungi was a, a narrative nonfiction account of fungi. By that I mean I talk about the science, you know, particularly the ecology, but the conservation, the cultural histories, evolutionary histories of fungi, but through stories. So I have it's underpinned by a solid foundation of science, but rather than being this sort of undigestible textbook of facts, I wrap a story around each theme to make it, to take the, to really take the reader with me on a journey through a particular country with a particular person, whether that person is a ranger or a First Nations person or a scientist or a forager. So that book was based on a project that I called A Thousand Days in the Forest. So I spent essentially a thousand days in the forests of 12 countries, both with the fungi, but also the followers of those fungi there's this great sweep of people and I tell the story of all these different stories of fungi through these different perspectives whether it's a, a photographer or whether it's a filmmaker or a philosopher or a, a scientist so that was the first book the allure of fungi and the one I've just written the most recent one is similar underground lovers so it's also narrative non-fiction but in the first one I put a series of photo essays in between each written essay and in the more recent one I've just tried to convey those images using words rather than putting those photo essays in. The middle book called Wild Mushrooming, that's the first guide in Australia to edible and toxic fungi. So unlike in Europe where their field guides have this lovely little dinner plate symbol or a, a skull and crossbones symbol next to each fungus, in Australia, and I think it's pretty similar in New Zealand, we don't tend to indicate the edibility, which fungi you can eat, which you can't. So this was the first guide that actually indicates that the edible species, but we always present them alongside their toxic doppelganger. That is the lookalike species they can be confused with. So that one's very much a guide of how to actually identify fungi using diagnostic features, whereas the other ones are more the narrative non-fiction presentation of the whole over the whole you know kingdom of fungi, but it but it's not a guide to identifying them. Mm. Have we got uh, a guide to fungi in New Zealand? You've got several. So I've got a couple of your guides and I believe there's a couple of new ones in the pipeline. So uh, there are, I've got a couple of them. I haven't got them in front of me now, but you've certainly got some beautifully illustrated mm. or photographed guides, lots of knowledge. You've got some fantastic mycologists 
in New Zealand, particularly Peter Buchanan, who's in Auckland, such a wonderful wealth of knowledge, such a generous sharer of his knowledge. And he's not just one of those scientists who only looks at the, the science and taxonomy of fungi. He also works on a very cultural level, working, for example, with First Nations knowledge, with Māori knowledge of fungi, and looking at those cultural aspects as well. So it's been my absolute pleasure over the years to, to talk to Peter. He shared with me so much about New Zealand's fungi. So you've got some tremendous mycologists there as well. Mm. And uh, for people who wanting to find out about your books, where do they go, Alison? Okay, so they are detailed on my website, which is my full name, alisonpulio.com, but also Unity Books in New Zealand, stock them, and also the publisher websites themselves. So what's known as the CSIRO website or New South Publishing website. They've also got a lot of information and reviews, but yeah, either through mine or even if you just put my name into a search engine, it usually directly goes straight to my website or the publisher's websites. But Unity Books also is the place to go to find some copies of those. Well, if you've got a, a, a loved mother or dad or wife or husband who is interested in the natural world and you're thinking, I need to buy them a little present, go and have a look because <laughs> these are beautiful books and they're books that will delight uh, they will be a delight as a present, I promise you, because they are truly beautiful. One of the things I've noticed since I've become a gardener, and I'm talking six months, Alison, so yep. it's not like uh, I am ashamed because my listeners are sick of me saying this. My mother and father were the greatest gardeners I've met. <laughs> wow. They didn't have, if you like, the prettiest gardens, but man, you know, they could they could feed the whole street. Wow! And their gardens looked beautiful, and they were always in the garden working. It was their 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 pleasure, and I never shared it. And now I'm into it, and I've got I'm amazed how much more observant. I've become of the weather, of the season, even in six months. But most particularly, I've become very observant of the soil because where I put my particular nursery was a handy place to put it, but had the worst soil I discovered when I started to dig around. And so I've had to compost and manure my soil, and I've become very aware of the soil. And I, I recently did a big drive and I love farming and watching farmers and the scale of it, but I couldn't help but look at their soil compared to my little wee plot. And it seemed sterile. Like when I went over to it, I actually had a look and you'd sort of pick it up and it was just, a substance to me, and it was sort of like something for putting plants in and holding them up. <laughs> Whereas when I'd composted and manured my soil, it's alive. Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder, I wonder, you must have a big view with your understanding of fungi, what's happening to our soil? 
Well, I think what we're often doing, Rodney, we're turning soil into dirt. So it's a good way of putting it. Dirt is the mineral components of soil, the inorganic, the non-living parts, the, the particles of silicon or sand, whereas soil is the mineral components plus the biology, so plus the fungi, plus the plants, plus the invertebrates. And what we're doing when we compact soils and we constantly disturb them through tilling or digging or other mining or whatever, when we, when we make them toxic through the overuse of fertilisers or other chemicals, when we overwater them or when we use fire inappropriately, what we do is we revert soils back to dirt because we lose the biology. We, because we, we change the conditions and that fungus or that beetle or that plant can't live there anymore because it's now too saline or it's too nutrient-rich or it's too, you know, heated through, through fire, we actually are losing soils and reverting it back to dirt. And so I think now I get very inspired, Rodney, when I work with regenerative farmers or horticultural students or permaculturalists and they're actually trying to maximise the biology in soils and bring dirt back to soils again. So I think it's an interesting time because we've lost a lot of that biology. Yeah, a lot of our soils are dirt or sterile was the word you used before. Mm. But I think that's turning around. We are in a bit of a fungal awakening or a fungal moment and people are recognising that if we want to keep living here, we want to keep growing nutrient-dense, rich food, we have to think deeply and comprehensively about our soils. And that uh, nutrient-dense uh, food, of course, is a big thing in the human diet. And uh, I'm a great follower, you may not have heard of him, of Western A. Price, who studied uh, traditional diets. He was able to travel the world in the 1930s and still discover uh, people uh, living uh, traditionally, you know, eating like they'd eaten for hundreds of years. And his observation was this nutrient-dense food and as compared to, say, um, flour and sugar, um, where it was just calories. Yeah. And you do wonder, don't you, that we're sort of growing our cabbages and, and, and potatoes in this barren soil where we are providing it with the correct chemicals uh, as we understand it, that they need to grow and look good, but not necessarily the nutrition that a plant might need, which is this complex complexity of the soil that we don't quite understand. Absolutely, and I think we're often driven by economic imperatives to of produce course. Yeah. And you can't you can't blame a farmer right they've got to of live. course and look this is not about blaming anyone at all it's no. just a reflection on how things have changed in time but if you think you said a moment before we put the right chemicals on but typically what we put on is what we commonly refer to as npk nitrates phosphates and potassium yes but a plant that is growing with fungi in its root system rather than putting on these additives it's bringing back more than NPK. It might be bringing back manganese or selenium or boron mm. or other things. And so this is why we're losing nutrient density or nutrient integrity because we're just putting on some additives, whereas a fungus gets the plant a much broader suite 
of different nutrients and minerals that it needs. So I think there is this return to more traditional methods where we actually don't till or we don't put additives or we don't over-irrigate. And we're trying to bring back the fungi to do that work. And the other wonderful benefit of that is the hip pocket. I mean, how much does irrigation cost? I mean, the astronomical price of applying fertilisers, whereas if we get the fungi back in the soil, they not only give them a broader, give the plants a broader suite of nutrients and minerals, but they do it better than us putting on the, you know, we think we know what they need. But I think, you know, and I know this is very hard to do on an industrial scale. You know, we're so mm. now it's really hard to change. But if we don't start somewhere, we're going to wind up in really big trouble. But it's fun to do at home. Indeed. And and, and you can do, do, do it at home. And the interesting thing is it's the similar thing to how for many, many years we lived in, if you were sick, you took a pill. And, um, you know, you needed a pill for this and a pill for that and, and the rest of it. Now we're, we've become a bit weary of the downside of always popping a pill to fix us. And in a funny way, thinking that you need some nitrogen or some potassium or some, what is it, magnesium or whatever in your soil, rather than looking at your soil as an ecosystem, as an ecological system that's providing nutrition to your plants, just like you get nutrition to your body. And I'm thinking here of how we've discovered in the last little while, literally, the huge importance of the biology of your gut. Absolutely. And you can... and I think there might be some, would there be, I mean, there'll be bacteria and yeast in your gut doing a very important symbiotic job. Absolutely. And I think we can broaden that out from, you know, the human biome to the, the ecological systems as yes. well. I think there's similar logics in how we understand the importance of diversity and maintaining, you know, that, that wonderful diversity and state of flux in those systems, but stability as well. So I think it's a good analogy that you make. If I was to buy my wife one of your books. <laughs> Which one would I get? Oh, well, I guess it depends on her interest. If she is a forager and wants to be able to differentiate edible from toxic species, then certainly wild mushrooming would be the best choice. Would that if work in New Zealand? It would. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure that Everything in that book, because many of the species in that book are actually European or North American species, and you've also got introduced trees over there, such as pines and spruce. And ah. So I think most of it, I, I'd have to check that, but I'm fairly convinced that almost everything in that book will work in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Well, so those sort, of, those sort of wild mushrooms and toadstools that we see, they are introduced. Many of the ones that we see growing, say, in the in pine forest are yeah. introduced, and many of the ones it. in the paddocks are too. There is one called Macrolepiota clalandii, or the pyrosol mushroom, that I'm just wanting, that is an Australian mushroom. I'm thinking that one might not be in New Zealand, but mm. I'd need to check that. You've probably got so to. So if they're into foraging, the foraging book is a good one. Yeah, but and if you if, like store, you go. Yeah, carry on. I was just saying, if she likes to be taken along on a journey through the forest, over glaciers, through grasslands, through all kinds of forests, including the forests of New Zealand, because there that are sounds like her. New Zealand, 
then I would say underground lovers is the one because I do very specifically talk not just about your wonderful forests, but also about the Maori knowledge of fungi. That's one mm. of the sections or one of the chapters. I look at Indigenous knowledge and I talk about the work of Peter Buchanan and some of the, the local elders and linguists who are actually trying to retrieve that Indigenous knowledge of fungi. So that probably would have the most relevance both geographically, but also it's a bit more digestible as a series of stories that take us around the world looking at these various themes about fungi. Mm. Now, i got to cover this because I'm sure you get it. Now, you take seminars too, don't you? I run forays, workshops, seminars, yeah, all kinds of different events. So if there was a group of people who were interested in having a get-together and having a day or two or a few days, they could contact you and you could organise for them uh, an introduction and a seminar on fungi. Absolutely. I never need an excuse to come to New Zealand. I was there earlier in the year and I would there you be go. absolutely thrilled to go out in the forest. Because that, that would be wonderful. And uh, are you getting an opportunity to get into schools or high schools or universities and talk to students? Look, I work certainly a lot with various universities, both in Australia, Europe and America. So I'm, mm. I'm working broadly across right. different universities. I, I've got very, very fortunate, Rodney. I get mostly requests from conservation groups, even things like I did a workshop recently with a group of emergency department hospitals and toxicologists to look at, you know, problems with issues with poisoning through fungi. So I work across a very broad spe spectrum mm. of people. Sometimes it's chefs and foragers who want to know which species they can forage for their restaurants. Other times I work a lot with photographers. I spend a lot of time running workshops, helping them work at how to capture fungi the best way with the cameras and phones. So I, I try and work across quite a broad demographic of people. I had a I had an image of you crouched over a fungi with an umbra, uh, an umbrella and a flashlights and 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 because your pictures are so stunning that um, I just had an image of you catching that little fungi like you're taking a uh, a studio shot or something. Is uh -huh. that how you do it? Look, I, I after years of carrying ridiculously heavy camera bags full of gear, I'm now very minimalist. I do all my fungi photography, fungus photography in the field. Unlike some people who like to have their studio set up where you can control lighting, I like to use the ambient lighting. I'm literally lying there in the undergrowth with the ferns, with the camera, on the tripod. Nice. And yet it's hard. They're a hard subject. They don't always smile on cue when you ask no. them. And often they're in the wettest, darkest, most leech-ridden parts of the forest, but it's tremendously satisfying when you can capture their exquisite beauty or bizarreness. And, and I, I, I have never watched any of those nature. I don't watch TV, so I've never watched any of those nature shows like Richard Attenborough and all the rest of it. Plus, I find them very dreary whenever I've seen a snip of it. But have they ever done a show, an episode on fungi? Look, I confess, Rodney, like you, I've never in my life no, watched television, no. but there has been a few recent programs come out. There was one called Fantastic Fungi by, oh, his name, Schwarzen, oh, Schwarzenberg, I think his name is. So we are now starting to see mm. some full-length films, some shorter documentaries. There's lots on YouTube and Vimeo now about fungi. There's also a fungus film festival run out of America every year. So certainly they are capturing the imagination of <laughs> still photographers and filmmakers. Now, I'm sure you get this question all the time in your seminars. I have a lot of weaknesses and <laughs> failings. 
But one, thank goodness, that I haven't got is for drugs. I've never taken drugs. I've had no interest ever in taking drugs. I sometimes think that if I got to 95, I might pig out on cocaine or something just to see what it's like. Um, because, you know, there must be something in it. But like I've never, I've, cigarettes, drugs, I don't drink alcohol. Um, I used to, but I don't now. But there's all this talk about magic mushrooms. And are they, what's that? Are they, is that a, a, something that comes off a particular mushroom? Okay, so in a nutshell, the term magic mushrooms refers to a group of fungi that all contain what is, I guess, technically a neurotoxin, but it's a psychoactive or an hallucinogenic substance. So there's various different fungi that contain these chemicals, and we've known about them for thousands of years. They've been used by all kinds of different cultures and societies around the world, often in initiation ceremonies, often in different things to try and, you know, elicit a higher state of consciousness. So it's nothing new, you know, that everyone from the Aztecs to the Berserkers to the Sami to different cultures all around the world have known about these what we call entheogenic properties or hallucinogenic properties. But more recently we've come to recognise that this great suite of chemicals can also be of tremendous medicinal benefit and, and most mm. particularly with mental health challenges such as post-traumatic stress disorder, end-of-life angst, depression. And so a group known as psilocybe, a genus known as psilocybe, is now being quite intensively researched as to how it can be administered to people who have some of these mental health challenges. So it's a very exciting time. For a long time they've been stig you know, stigmatised because we've seen you know, the whole 60s magic mushroom era of the you know hippies of, of America and whatever. So they were banned and illegalized, but now things are changing. And it's, it's a very cutting edge time where this whole fungal awakening extends to not just recognizing their benefit and ecosystems, but the great utility in terms of food and also medicinal pharmaceutical use. Okay. So these druggy hippies, they would head out into the bush or a paddock looking for mushrooms. Absolutely. Wow. And, I mean, I was out there today just before, 10 minutes before I came on with you, I was out and... And you got high. I get high like you, Rodney. I just get high <laughs> walking around the bush. I don't even need the mushrooms. No. I just get so, you know, enlightened and thrilled being there. But the most common fungus I saw was psilocybe, which is a very popular one here, I imagine, in New oh. Zealand as well. But you also have to be aware that these things are... Technically illegal, so yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert in this field. And but they could I, kill you too, right? Well, the, this probably won't kill you, but if you mistake it for another mushroom, there's one, for example, known as the funeral bell. If you have enough of those, they'll kill you. So if you mix up the magic mushroom you're looking for with something else, it could certainly kill you. But even without killing you, for some people, these magic mushrooms have a, a wonderful effect for other people that can go the other way. Like the same mm. with other drugs or alcohol, as you suggested yes. earlier. Like just depends on your and, particular, yeah. And when I was a kid, I don't, I mean, we could get mushrooms in a paddock once in a rare moon and have mushrooms at home. But it seems now that there's always mushrooms in the supermarket and a variety of mushrooms in the supermarket. So the growing of mushrooms, I don't know whether it has just 
become a thing in New Zealand and it had always been a thing elsewhere. But it's quite a must be quite a big crop now, mushrooms yeah. for eating eating purposes. And I think you're right. I think that generally it has been, yeah, a little bit slow to catch on to the wonderful benefits of fungi. And there is a real wave of, for various reasons, people wanting to grow mushrooms at home and whether they're trying to avoid the monopoly of supermarkets or whether they just love that thrill of seeing, you know, how quickly they emerge. Also, people moving away from meat. I mean, of course, fungi don't have the amount of protein of meat, but they certainly have textural and flavoral similarities. So I think there's a whole range of reasons why people are growing mushrooms at home or seeking gourmet mushrooms in farmers markets and supermarkets. So it's a very interesting time. Well, maybe that's my next thing. I'll sort, <laughs> out, I'll sort yeah. out the fungi on my beech trees. And I've put up a wee tunnel house, and I should investigate growing some mushrooms, not the magic types, just the ones that you can have in your sauce with your steak. Yeah, um, and they're not hard to grow. Oh, really? No. Oh, how interesting. Because oh, well, you that's can, wonderful. People, there's all these suppliers now who supply the substrate or the growing medium that has already got all those conditions right and they've basically impregnated them with the mycelium already. So they've they've done all the legwork for you. You don't have to work at all. What's there the, you go. So, and that's it's just my, so satisfying. That's my next thing. Alison, what a treasure you are. Oh, and, thank you. And, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge we didn't get into your experiences because i imagine you've had some exciting times uh wandering the world looking at fungi every day is exciting ronnie yeah every day going to uh, the forest there's something new to discover so yeah have you got another book planned look i um I, i've actually got an american version of underground lovers coming out called meetings with remarkable mushrooms so i've just been working with chicago university press to to americanize that text and that one will have images in it as well so i've just got to finish that one off that comes out in september and then after that i need to have a yeah think about is there another book i mean you know venturing around the world with mushrooms i could tell stories till the end of my life because they're pretty, right. they're pretty oh, good fun, but... well i imagine when you americanize a book you just misspell certain words and that does it. <laughs> Huh? Well, you also, yeah, and you contextualise it. <laughs> Alison, thank you so much. Please tell us again your surname. Okay, so it's Pulio with a silent T. How do you spell it? It's P-O-U-L-I-O-T. And it's Alison with one L. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Reality Check Radio. It's been wonderful having you on Real Talk. I know listeners would have um, loved hearing from you. Oh, if you want to drop a note to Alison, you can send me a text at 2057 and I'll pass it on or inbox at realitycheck.radio or uh, look up her webpage, have a look at her books. They're beautiful. They make wonderful, wonderful presents for that hard to think of uh, heart. You know, there's people that are so hard to get a present for. Uh, this would be a winner for sure. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio. It's been Alison Pulley. I hope I get that right. It's been wonderful having her on. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.